today I'm going to jump right in. I'm going to be preaching out of the word, the book of Numbers, which I know, you know, sometimes Numbers gets kind of a bad rap. Some people think it's a boring book, you know, and there are definitely segments of it that are can kind of make your eyes go cross when it starts talking about the census and all the amounts of people in each tribe. And uh, But the truth of the matter is, Numbers is really a great book. It's actually one of my favorite out of the Old Testament because it's got everything in it. It's got the fire of God. It's got the earth opening up and swallowing people. Uh, it's got the mercy of God. It's got where he gave them the meat that they wanted. It's got uh, talking donkeys. It's got uh, the spies going into Jericho. It's got all kinds of really good stuff. So um, I actually really love this word. So today I'm gonna do a little mix of teaching and preaching. I gotta do some teaching so that I can preach. And, uh, uh, but I, I think you're gonna be blessed by it. And if you hang with me, I think you're gonna be challenged and encouraged and enlightened because I experienced all three of those this week just in preparation for it. So um, the, my text verse is not gonna make a whole lot of sense to you on the front end, but I promise it will before I'm done. Uh, or at least I'm gonna do my best to make it make sense for you. So with that being said, if you guys would stand with me, please, as we honor God's word together. Out of Numbers, we're gonna, I'm gonna read the last couple of verses of chapter one and the first couple of verses of chapter two. It says, the Israelites are to set up their tents by division, each man in his own camp under his own standard. That word standard there also means like a banner or a flag. Each family in Israel had their own flag, their own color flag to delineate them from the others. The Levites, however, are to set up their tents around the tabernacle of the testimony so that wrath will not fall on the Israelite community. It's very important that you remember that line. The Levites are to be responsible for the care of the tabernacle of the testimony. The Israelites did all this just as the Lord commanded Moses. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron, the Israelites are to camp around the tent of meeting, which the tent of meeting is just another name for the tabernacle, some distance from it, each man under his standard with the banners of his family. The title of my message today is Meeting in the Middle. Would you pray with me, please? Our wonderful Heavenly Father, we thank you for today. Lord, we're so blessed to be here. We're so blessed to be able to serve you, to know you, and to know that you love us. Lord, we are here today for you. We thank you for this building and for this church and for this ministry, but Lord, it's all just a tool and a vessel to honor you. We're really here for you, Jesus, and I pray that you would do your work in our hearts today that only you can do, God, and that my words would be your words today. I pray that you would be glorified in this place. We welcome you here, Lord Jesus. Come. Have your way in every one of our lives. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. And everyone said, amen, amen. amen. Before you're seated, look at your neighbor and say, I'm here for Jesus. Yes, praise God. Some of you might have said that in faith, but, uh, but we're gonna believe that it's true, amen? So my message today, meeting in the middle. So you, I'm sure you've heard that term before, and usually what that term means is when two parties have to kind of work together to come to a solution together, right? You've got whether it's a negotiation or some solution you're trying to come to where the two parties are far apart and one person's not gonna get their way completely, the other person's not gonna get their way, and so you kind of meet in the middle where nobody gets their way completely but everybody's at least somewhat happy. Um, as, a, as a builder, I've had many real estate negotiations, you know, and I would wanna sell a house and I would wanna sell it for this much and a buyer would come along and wanna buy it for this much and they're not coming up here and I'm not going down there. But we would negotiate and meet in the middle and. Boom, everybody was at least a little bit happy, right? And uh, basically meeting in the middle is a term for compromise. We've all had to make compromises in our life. You, there's compromises in basically every relationship you'll ever have in your life, right? 
And when I think of compromise, the first that comes to my mind is marriage because marriage is a, literally a lifestyle of compromise where you're coming together all the time, meeting in the middle all the time because two humans can never agree on everything all the time. It's not even possible, right? And when I was thinking about just even with eating, you know, when Joy and I go to eat out, you know, we always have to compromise. I want Mediterranean food, she wants Indian food. And so we meet in the middle, which is obviously Chick-fil-A. <laughs> the Christian chicken. Uh, nobody's ecstatic with Chick-fil-A, but everybody's satisfied, so it's fine. Um, but that's, that's, what, uh, that's what relationship is. In fact, there's compromise in pretty much every relationship, even a parent to a kid. I can't tell you how many times I've had to bargain with toddlers, you know, to try to get them to do what I want them to do. And so uh, there's only one relationship where it's not about meeting in the middle and it's not about compromising, and that is our relationship with Jesus. You see, he doesn't come and meet us in the middle when he says, I have the standard for your life, and you're like, well, but I'm over here, and Jesus says, okay, well, give me half, meet me halfway and we'll call it good. It's not how he works. He don't work that way at all. In fact, he's already done everything that he needs to do to make it so that we can come up to his, to his level and to be what he wants us to be in life. So, so when I talk about meeting in the middle, when I'm talking about our relationship with Jesus, it's not about compromising, it's about actually meeting him literally in the middle of our lives, which brings me to my text. So I'm gonna give you a little explanation here uh, to kind of bring it into some clarity. So this verse I told you about was, they're talking about the tents camping around the tabernacle, okay? So the Israelites just came out of Egypt, okay? They'd literally been out of Egypt for just weeks, maybe a couple months, I don't remember exactly. And God, they'd already broken fellowship with God. God miraculously delivered them. Most of you know the story of the deliverance out of Egypt. And they'd already broken fellowship with him because when Moses was up on the mountain getting the 10 commandments, they were down there putting a, all their jewelry in a fire and making a golden calf to worship. And so they already messed it all up Moses comes back down, stands in the gap for them so that God didn't destroy them. But beyond that, then God tells Moses, well, I want you to build a tabernacle. This is, the tabernacle is literally the dwelling place of God is what that means, where God would dwell with the people. Because they, the reason, part of the reason they wanted to worship a golden calf was because they wanted something visible that they could worship, because that's what they were used to in this, these ancient days. And because Moses was gone, there was no sign of God, they're like, well, we gotta worship something. They wanted to see it. So God's gonna give them something to worship his presence. And uh, so he has Moses, gives him instructions to build this tabernacle, and so he does it, and then they, God gives them the instructions on how they're supposed to camp around this tabernacle. Because if you know the story, when they were in the desert, they moved around. God would move them closer and closer to the promised land as the years went on. They were in the desert for 40 years, but there was not one specific place they camped out. And so this tent would have to be taken down when God told them to move, and they'd move, and then when they get to the next place, they'd have to set it all back up again and they'd have to camp around it. And God gives them specific instructions about how to camp around this tabernacle. And he says the, the, the Israelites are supposed to be a little ways away from the tabernacle, and then the Levites were actually in the inner circle that was actually closer to the tabernacle. In fact, I, uh, I have a picture that we're gonna show you guys so you can see exactly what we're talking about. I know this picture is, you know, it kinda looks like a kid drew it, but it works. So um, you can see there that in the center you have the tabernacle. Okay, and then the, the, the four dark blue rectangles represent different families in the tribe of Levi, the Levites. These were the Levite people. They were in the inner circle, and then you had all the rest of the siblings of Israel that camped out around them beyond that. And so, and to understand this, you have to understand where they were at at this time. So the tabernacle was basically the, it was the representation of God. It, 
It encompassed the, the Ark of the Covenant, which was literally the presence of God was in this Ark, okay? That was what resembled and exemplified the presence of God for them. And see, the children, normal people during that time, this was years, thousands of years before Jesus, right? Thousands of years before the New Covenant. So Jesus had not come yet. So these people typically were not able to have a relationship with God. You couldn't, if you were a normal person, have a relationship with God. You didn't have the Holy Spirit living in you, and you didn't have unconditional forgiveness for your sins. And so these people were typically separated from God. The only way they could actually be in relationship with God was through a liaison, which was either a prophet or a priest, okay? And so the priests were few, and God anointed and commissioned the Levite tribe of the people of Israel to be the priests. And so it's significant that God would put the Levites in the inner circle around the tabernacle. They were the buffer between the people and God. They needed a buffer because the people were deserving of the wrath of God. In fact, my text verse even says, like, put the Levites inside the circle so that you don't experience God's wrath. Because they'd already messed up so many times, even after he did everything he did for them to get them out of Egypt. So he says, you need a buffer, so we're going to... I'm gonna anoint the Levites and they're gonna be the inner circle. You guys are gonna be the outer circle and that'll be enough to appease the wrath of God in that setting. So, what does that mean for me today? Well, I am so glad you asked because the principles of this very illustration apply to us today too in a different way, but there's, there's much that we can learn from this. First of all, the tabernacle represented the presence of God, right? We all want to experience the presence of God in our life. I should say most of us, almost all of us would want to experience his presence. Not the, not the, uh, the things that you might have seen that was maybe artificial presence of God, but the real presence of God. The presence of God that transforms us. The presence of God that makes us more like him. The presence of God that sets us free from the chains that bind us in our life, right? We all want to experience that. In fact, you may have even come to church today hoping to experience God. See, anybody can give information about God. I could get up here and just read straight from the Bible and give you information. But if you don't experience God, if it doesn't go inside of you and go into your soul, into your spirit, it's just information. We don't need information. We need transformation. Every one of us. And it starts right here, guys. It starts with me. We all need the transformation that God can give us. In fact, it's interesting because I read this week that the fastest growing churches in the United States, pre-pandemic and now, are churches where people say they experience God. Where they're not just coming in and getting information or, or going through rituals, but they're actually experiencing the supernatural power of God in their life. And how that looks. To set us free, to redeem us, to bring, help us to forgive those people that have harmed us when we can't forgive on our own, but the presence of God comes into our life and gives us the supernatural ability to let something go. Where God comes into a situation and gives us clarity in a situation, gives us peace that goes beyond our understanding, gives us joy unspeakable that you can't even put into words, that kind of stuff that God does in our life. Those churches that are experiencing that are the fastest growing ones in the, in the US, with good reason. We don't wanna go through rituals. We're here to be in relationship with Jesus because see you couldn't be in relationship before your relationship was with the priest you're like hey priest I need you to go talk to God Moses I need you to go talk to God because I really need something 
and I, I need to find out. So literally, this is how it would work. And Moses would go before God, and he would inquire of the Lord for the children of Israel because they couldn't just talk to God on their own. They couldn't just have a relationship because they deserved his wrath. And so the priests would go in and make atonement for the sins. They'd make sacrifices. But even in that, the priests had to know exactly how to do it. They had to take the exact right animal. It had to be a spotless animal without blemish. And they'd take it before. And it was even how they killed it. It had to be just right. And how they sprinkled blood. It had to be. I mean, it goes into great detail in Leviticus about how they had to do all of this, right? So even in that, the Levites were more, were just kind of, they were in the fear of God. They were like, they got to do it just right or else they could be killed themselves. In fact, Aaron's sons were killed in the presence of God because they did it wrong. So there was a lot of fear and trembling about God. You couldn't really experience him, you couldn't experience him the way we can today. But can I tell you this today, church? And if you don't hear anything else, else I say today, please hear this. If we want the transformation of God in our life, if we want the power, the supernatural power of God working in us and through us in our life, it only happens. And I'm saying it as strong as I can say it. It only happens when we meet Jesus in the middle of our life. He has to be in the center of our life. This, this, diagram, this illustration we get that I put up there that shows the tabernacle, the Levites, the children of Israel in that picture, it's the same thing today. God wants to be in the center of our life. Now, we don't have Levites today as a buffer between us and God, but this is where it gets really good because we don't need them anymore. Because the Levites were the priests, we've got a new priest. He is the highest of the high priests, and he has done the work to not only keep a buffer between us and God, but actually usher us into the presence of God. Imagine if the Levites could have taken the Israelites and said, hey, come on with me, Dan. I'm going to bring you into the Holy of Holies here. He couldn't do that or they'd both die. Now we got this high priest, Jesus, who says, let's go. And he brings us into the presence of God, not because we're worthy, not because we've done everything right, but because of what he has done for us. Let me read for you out of Hebrews 4 and 14. It says, therefore... Since we have a great high priest who has gone through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. Jesus is our great high priest. He's in that same line that, that what was the Levites now, and you had all these priests, now you just got one, that's all you need. In fact, the whole book of Hebrews is a dissertation on the fact that there used to be this other priesthood, and now we got a new priest, and this new one is much, much better than the old. That's what the book of Hebrews is all about. Just telling us like, hey, you don't need priests anymore. You just need the high priest. And, and the, the benefits and the, the perks of being in this new high priest are so much better than the Levites could have ever done for any of us in our life. Now Jesus is the buffer. But he's not only a buffer, he actually brings us into the presence of God. You see, the Levites had to, they had to stand before the Israelites, they had to be a barrier between them. Like you would have had to go through a Levite tent camp to get to the tabernacle. And so they were actually guarding it in, in, a, in, a, in a sense of speaking. And it was because of the wrath of God, which was in my text verse. Remember that word wrath, the wrath of God. Because in Romans five, we see what Jesus actually did. Romans five verses eight and nine, look what it says. Everybody knows this first verse. But God demonstrated his own love for us in this that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Praise God and hallelujah. Don't you love a God 
that we serve a God that's not afraid to demonstrate his love. He doesn't just say he loves us, he actually showed us, and then he didn't even wait till we were good enough to receive it, he, wait, he did it while we were still all tools, and he came and died for us anyway. Well, then the next, barrier, next verse says, since we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? Do we understand today, church, that we have been saved from God's wrath because of what Jesus did for us? Now, I know that's not a popular topic today. That's not even something you'll hear in many, many churches across the world about the wrath of God. We'd much rather talk about the love of God and that he's just this guy walking around carrying flowers because he just loves everybody so much and giving flowers to people and telling us how much he loves us and everything's good and you're good and I'm good. Let me tell you something. There is a, there is a wrath of God that is very, very real. And the only reason we don't experience that wrath is because of Jesus. None is good enough to not experience the wrath of God outside of Jesus. And, he say, and Paul says it right here, how much more shall we be, be saved from his wrath because of what Jesus did for us? That's a beautiful promise. But it's so important that we understand that we're not good with God because I'm a good person and I go to church and I can read my Bible, I can quote some verses and I'm nice to people and I say God bless you and I have a few worship songs on my playlist on my phone. That's not why we are in good graces with God. We're in good graces with God because of what Jesus did. And the only reason we're, that we don't get the wrath of God is because we find ourselves hidden in Jesus. We literally clothe ourselves with Jesus. That's why God looks at us and says, okay, you're good. See, all the Levites could do at that time was to make some atonement to try to keep God's wrath from being poured out on the Israelites. That was the best they could do at that time. But if you took the Levites out of that camp, if if an alien ship came and took every Levite out of that camp and that inner circle was gone and all that was left was the outer circle and the tabernacle, the Israelites would have experienced the wrath of God in a, in a powerful way. And they did. In numbers, there's multiple situations where they experienced the wrath of God. And I'm gonna, I'm gonna show you one here in a little bit, but it was those Levites that created that buffer. Well, now we got, we got the perfect Levite. We got Jesus creating that that relationship with us, giving us the relationship that we need with Jesus. But can I tell you today, the transformation that we want always comes when he is in the middle. If, if, he's, if that tabernacle's on the outside of the tent, on the outskirts of our town, and I'm not talking about Augusta, I'm talking about like your life. If, it's on the, if he's on the outskirts, you're not reaping what you can reap. You're not going to experience that transforming power, that 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 passionate, that experience that you want with Jesus, we don't get to experience that if he's not in the center of our lives. And to keep him in the middle, we must remember, we must remember that he is the only God. The Bible says, hear, O Israel, the Lord thy God is one, that there is only one God. And many of you would look at me and say, well, of course, duh, he's only one God. But we, we serve other gods in our life. We don't build golden calves and bow down to them, but there's other gods that we can struggle with serving in our life, right? Because really the world would want us to. The world serves nothing but other gods all the time. It doesn't look like it looked for the children of Israel, but we're always serving or tempted to serve other gods. But it's very clear in Exodus 20 when Moses got the 10 commandments, he's, it was very clear. Serve the Lord your God. 
The Lord your God is one. Serve him and him, and there will be no other gods before me, is what he said. Now, for us, it's easy to think that that, that just means God is saying like, like it's a line of gods, and as long as God's in the front, as long as there aren't any in front of him, before him, it's okay, you can have other gods. No, that word before there means in my presence. So he says, there will be no other gods in my presence. That's how it goes. And since we know that God is omnipresent, we know that that means there's no other God. There's just no others. It's just him. It's him and him alone. He is exclusive. And see, this is a tension that's a deal breaker for many, many people. Billions of people, this is a deal breaker. See, lots of people like the idea of God, even the God of the Bible. They like the good parts that they would say, you know, the fact that he's compassionate, that he's merciful, that he's good, that he loves us. They like those things, right? It's when he, it's, in fact, when you see athletes or actors or any other celebrities or politicians on TV and they're thanking God, nobody, nobody minds that, right? Like, that's good. As long as it's some ambiguous God, yeah, that's fine, right? But if they invoke the name of Jesus, See, I'd like to thank my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, for without whom none of this would be possible. All of a sudden, the eyebrows start furrowing. Like, oh, wait a minute. No, 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 no. That's, that's another level, right? Because many people know the, Jesus was exclusive. His commands were exclusive for us. In fact, the, the world would even say, a lot of people in the world that are outside of this faith like the historic Jesus, the story of him on the earth they like because he was very compassionate, he was merciful, he did miracles. People believe that he did healings. They did a lot of good things. He was good to children. He was good to women. So there was just, a, it's obvious he was a good person, right? It's when he goes on and says, oh, by the way, though, I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the light. And no one comes to the Father but through me. That's when people have a hard time with it. Because now you're saying you're the only one. That's exclusive. We don't like that in our society, right? We like to be all inclusive. And we, the world would have you believe that there are many gods and that there are many ways to God. And I'm not here to rail on other religions at all. In fact, the truth is, a lot of the world religions have some truth in them. And they have good people in them. It's okay to say that. The problem is they fall short on a very, very important point. God's not looking for good people. God's looking for people that will serve and worship his son. That's what he's looking for, amen. And I know most of you here today would agree with all of that, right? But just because you agree that there's only one God and you believe that doesn't mean that he's in the center of your life. It doesn't mean that he is the number one priority in your life. And if he's in the middle of your life, what that means is you, not only do you believe that there's only one God, it also means you don't worship anything else. And you might say, well, that's easy. I don't sing songs of worship to anybody else. I don't pray to anybody else. I don't think anybody else died for my sins. And that's good. But you know what, that's just a piece of the pie. I mean, how much time in a week do you spend singing songs to Jesus and praying to Jesus and meditating on the fact that he died for your sins. How many hours in a week? 10, 15, 20? That's still just a piece of the pie. There's a lot of other hours in the week. And I could tell you unequivocally that in the rest of those hours of the week, there's other things trying to take that place of worship in your life. Because we are all designed and hardwired for worship. Every one of us. 
if you never hear the name of Jesus, if you never serve any religion or follow any religion in your life, I promise you, you are worshiping someone or something. And if we're honest, we can admit that there are times that worshiping Jesus is not the most fun person or entity to worship. Sometimes worshiping Jesus is a challenge because it shows our heart. Because when we worship him, he starts to deal with the things in our heart that are deceitful and wicked and the selfishness and those things that he would want to bring transformation in our life. So sometimes if we're not feeling it with Jesus, there are lots of other things that would wanna come in and say, ooh, I, I'm happy to take the place of worship in your life. Money is one of the hardest things for even Christians not to worship in our life. I'm not talking about putting stacks of cash on the floor and bowing down to it. Okay, that's not the only thing worship is. We're singing songs to money. Worship is just giving something extreme worth. That's what worship is. Elevating it, giving it extreme worth. And we can put lots of things above our, worth, our worship of Jesus. And money is one of those, right? It's the reason Jesus talked about money more than anything else except for the kingdom of God. Because it is so easy to put money at a higher place than what it's intended to be put at. And it can become an object of our worship. Our health can be an object of our worship where we put more worth in medicine or doctors or hospitals than we do in Jesus when it comes to our health. Now, I don't have any issue with doctors or medicine or hospitals, I think they're great. But again, they need to know their rightful place in our life. It should never be put above Jesus. We can, we can put greater worth on our career. We can worship the idea of our career where we put more worth in our hard work and our education than we do in Jesus. Again, nothing wrong with hard work, nothing wrong with education, big fan of both of them. But they have to know their rightful place. And if they get above our faith and our worth in Jesus, then it's become something that we have worshiped. And there's, it's not possible to keep Jesus in the center of our life if we're worshiping those things. Leisure is another one. Our hobbies, the things we like to do, Watching TV, playing sports, shopping, traveling, whatever it is. Those things, if we put more worth in those than we do in Jesus, they become an idol in our life. They become something that we are worshiping. And I just wanna say real, real briefly to the men that are listening here today. Football is a God in the South. It's a God. There is absolutely no question about it. It's not just in the South, it's in a lot of places. And it, it, it cannot get to that place in our life where it is more important than our relationship with God, okay? It cannot be there. And I'm not against football. If you know me, you know I'm a huge Ohio State Buckeyes fan. Love to watch them on Saturdays, but you know what? Saturday's also a big prep day for me. I miss most Ohio State games. And I'm okay with that. Now, if I got nothing to do and I'm home, you better believe it, I'm watching it. But it's not a God in my life. It won't take priority over my relationship with Jesus. But it can, and we have elevated it so much. And can I tell you, like if, if any of these things, anything about leisure or your health or career, any of this kind of makes you kind of buck up, like, hmm, I don't like what he's saying here, you know, or you're trying to think of excuses or whatever. Can I tell you, if that's kind of the feeling you have right now, I can pretty much guarantee you that those things are a God in your life. Pretty much guarantee it. Now I know I'm probably not making a lot of friends saying that today, but I love you guys. And I wanna see you grow in your faith and in your relationship with Jesus. Because can I tell you, if, if our priority is to worship Jesus above all else, that he's the only God, that he's worthy of it all in our life, 
then we want to know if there's things that are trying to sneak into the room, trying to sneak into that inner room, into the Holy of Holies. I wanna know if there's something sneaking into that room in my life. So people in my life know they have place to say it to me. If Joy comes to me and says, hey, you're way too into Ohio State football, then I wanna know that because I don't want anything to take away from my relationship with him. I wanna have the prayer that John the Baptist had that said I have to decrease and he has to increase. So I'm, not, I'm saying if there's even things in my life that aren't sin, and they're, they're actually okay things, but they are starting to sneak into the inner room, I'm getting rid of them. I'm, it, it, with all I have, I'm getting rid of them. Now, am I perfect? Have I arrived? Do I just sit at home and read my Bible and pray all hours of the night? No, of course I don't do that. I have, I have vices just like everyone else. I have things that can distract me and take my attention, but I don't serve any other gods in my life as much as I can help it. Do I have my moments? Of course. Do I have my moments where I wish I had a million dollars in the bank? You better believe it. Who wouldn't want that? <laughs> but I'm not gonna live my life in such a way that I'm gonna get to that place no matter what. I'm not gonna sacrifice anything with my God. If my God wants me to, to, to do whatever it is, give every dollar I have away to sell my house and give away all the money, I'm in. If I know it's my God telling me to do it because I don't want anything to stand in the way of me keeping him in the center of my life. Because I can tell you, church, without question, he will not share that inner room. He doesn't share. The Holy of Holies is for him and him alone and for you to go in there with him. He doesn't want you bringing football in there with you. He doesn't want you bringing your, your money in there with you, all your friendships in there with you. You're not bringing anything else in. It's you and him. Nothing gets to take precedent over him and nothing else gets to get into the room with him. Matthew 6 and 33 most of you know this verse. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all these things will be given to you as well. Seek first his kingdom. That's how good our God is. He says, I want you to put me first, but I'll also give you the things you need if you do that. So it's not like you gotta live this life of poverty or go without everything that everybody else has in life. He's like, seek me first. Give me first place. Keep me in the center. Meet me in the middle of your life. And all of these things will be added to you as well. That's how good our God is. This should not be a burden for us. This is a privilege. The fact that he wants to be our everything. The God of the universe wants you to be in that inner room with him. Do you, you realize the significance of that? For thousands of years before Jesus came, you couldn't go into that inner room no matter how much money you had, no matter how good of a person you were, no matter how many old ladies you helped cross the street, no matter how many kids you rescued from human trafficking, no matter what you've done, you could never go into that inner room. And now he says, oh yeah, yeah, come on in. I want you. Not only do I want you, I need you. Like, come, be in this room with me. That's an incredible privilege. It's not a burden. We get the blessing of being in a personal, intimate relationship with Jesus. I think sometimes we approach our relationship with him like we would with a, like if you ever have a, like a new relationship in your life, like a new friendship or a new dating relationship, and you kind of go in thinking, yeah, you know, this, this could be just a nice little uh, addition to my life, you know? If I gotta, I'm dating a girl and we can go out on Friday nights, you know, but other than that, I'm gonna hang out with my friends and kind of do my thing. And then you realize all of a sudden that, you know, that person's not okay with your arrangement and they want to have more time and they want every day together. And like, if you're not with them, you have to text them every hour or two to check in and it gets to be this codependent thing and the world just kind of revolves around them. We've kind of all probably been there at some point in life where you've had a relationship where the other person just expected a lot more out of it than you do. 
Can I tell you though, that's how God wants us to come into the relationship with him, that we would expect everything and give him everything. He's not codependent, it's not like that at all. It's in a healthy way he's saying to you and me, hey, you can't do this on your own. You don't just need me a few minutes a day. You don't just need me when you're low in the tank and wanna fill up. You need me every minute of every day. I heard a pastor say not too long ago, he said that too many of us wanna have a Costco relationship with God. I thought it was genius. He said, you just go to Costco when you want something and you get more than you need. You overflow. You get like, instead of 10 rolls of toilet paper, you get 600. <laughs> and then you only have to go back every, you know, every three months when I need more. Like that's the relationship too many of us want to have with God. We're like, God, okay, I got some needs. Here I come. And you lay down and you lay down your list and you give him everything and you do everything you need to do. And then you walk off expecting him to give you more than enough. And then like when my tank gets low, I'll come to you. I've kind of added this on my own. I think God wants us to have a Dunkin' Donuts relationship. You know the people that go to Dunkin' every day, they don't know how they're gonna get through their day without it. I see the line around the building. Whether it's Starbucks or Dunkin', whichever one. But no Costco relationships. We need the caffeine of God every day. <laughs> now that was heresy, but um, you get my point. He doesn't want us to have a Costco relationship but one where we need him every day. Paul said, you are the air I breathe. In you I live and move and have my being. Oh, that that would be the cry of our heart. God, I don't wanna just want you when I need something. I wanna want you every minute of every day to be the center because that's where the transformation happens in our life. The more I give my life to him, the more I surrender my life to him, the more I commit myself to him, the more I see him making me more like him. It's a beautiful thing. And I got a long way to go. Joy can attest to that. I got a long way to go. But I am I'm more like him than I've ever been. Isn't that the goal? Be more, it changed more into his likeness all the time. We'll never arrive until we're with him face to face. And even then, I think we're just gonna be on our face worshiping him. But the goal is to be more like him. We can't be more like him if he's not in the center of our life, if he's not part of every part of our life. All right, but that's not easy because there are bullies that want to be in the center, right? There are bullies that want to be in the center of our heart and in our life. And I'm gonna give you three of them quickly. Don't worry, I'm not gonna go too long here. The first one is cravings. Cravings are bullies in our life. They want what they want when they want it, right? We all have cravings. If it wasn't for cravings, I'd be standing up here slim and trim. I do fine at meals. It's that 8.30 in the evening thing that says, there's ice cream in the freezer. <laughs> that's why and those cravings they just take over and I'm like no no I don't need ice cream and the next thing I know I'm <laughs> shoveling it in you know and the kids come down and there's not enough left for all of us so I'm like hiding it you know those cravings are somewhat harmless to a degree but really we have cravings in our life that take control like that too and they move Jesus out of the center of our life and they will take over they are bullies they will bully everything else out of our life you know, the Israelites, they craved meat when they were in the desert. When they first got in the desert, God provided food for them. It was manna. But then they got where they're like, we're tired of this manna. We don't even want to eat anymore. We want meat. We had all the meat we wanted in Egypt. And they were complaining because they wanted meat. And God said, God said, okay. He tells Moses, he's like, I'm going to give them meat. He's, they're going to have more meat than they ever thought they could have. They're going to have more meat than they want. He said, in fact, and this is in the Bible. You can read it. He says, they're going to have so much meat, it's going to be coming out of their nostrils. That's God speaking. So he gives them the meat. 
But then look what happens. Numbers 11, verses 33 and 34. But while the meat was still between their teeth and before it could be consumed, the anger of the Lord burned against the people and he struck them with a severe plague. Before the place was named Kibroth Hatava, because they had buried the people who craved the other food. That word Kibroth Hatava, I'm probably butchering it, but it means graves of craving. Literally what it means. These people died because of their cravings. Now, is there anything wrong with eating meat and wanting meat? Of course not, but their heart was exposed. They were willing to go back to Egypt into captivity because of their cravings, because we just have to have meat. They weren't, nobody was dying of malnutrition. They were just bored with the manna. And God responded by giving them the meat, but then they were hit with a plague and many, many, many of them died because of their cravings. I wonder how many of us have allowed our cravings to bring us spiritual death in our life. We have given in to those cravings that have pulled us away, that have taken center place in our life, have taken the spot where the tabernacle is supposed to be, where the presence of God is supposed to be in our life, and we've given in to it. We are not victims of our cravings, church. We are not victims of them. Whether it's relationships and wanting to feel loved, whether it's craving of wanting to be successful financially, and so we dedicate our life to it. Whatever it is, we are not victims of that. We are called to put him in the middle, to put him first. And Jesus says, if you seek me first, the things will be added to you that you do need. We'll be in his will, we'll be in his plan and his purpose. And the benefits from that are so unbelievable we can't even express them all. But, but cravings are a bully. The second one is ignorance. Ignorance is a bully. Now that doesn't seem like it could be because ignorance is just not knowing, right? But not knowing is, wants to take center place in our life, for sure. You know, the term ignorance is bliss. Can I tell you spiritually, ignorance is not bliss. The Bible's clear, we are going to be held in account for what we know and what we don't know when that day comes. So we, it's not good enough for us to say, well, you know what, I, I know the high points, you know, I know the big stories in here, and I know the gospel, so I'm good. God says, no, he, we, are, we are to dedicate our lives to knowing him, to giving our lives to him, to surrendering our lives to him. We can't surrender our lives to somebody we don't know. And we don't have an excuse. In fact, Romans 1, Apostle Paul says it very clearly in, in verse 20. For since creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made so that people are without excuse. No one has an excuse when it comes to our spiritual life. Nobody. He has revealed himself through his creation. There is no way any of us can stand before God and say, well, but God, I didn't know. That won't hold any water with him. But, you know, we live in an era right now where nobody wants to take blame for anything. We're taught to make excuses for everything, as if we even need to be taught, because a little toddler knows innately how to make an excuse, right? So you combine that with the fact that our culture's gone that way. I mean, I don't know about you guys, but my auto insurance company tells me if you ever get in an accident, I mean, if you T-boned a guy that was sitting in a parking lot, do not admit fault, right? Because it might cost us $10. They don't want anything, you know, just don't admit anything, and that's permeated through all of our life. Politicians, you'll never hear them say they made a mistake because their advisors have told them if you do that, people are just gonna jump on it, your political career will be over, deny, 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 pivot, spin, whatever you gotta do, and it's, it's in us too, it's in our culture. In fact, when I, was, uh, when I spent some time in West Africa in my 20s, and we would be driving around and people there told us, hey, if you ever get in an accident, 
the people here, they will never admit fault either. In fact, not only will they not admit fault, they'll say it's your fault, no matter what. I was like, no way. Sure enough, I'm driving down the road one day and I'm on the main road, a guy comes out of a side road. He was supposed to stop, I didn't even have a light or nothing, it was just a road. Guy comes out of a side road, didn't stop, hits me in the back, almost spun me around. It wasn't a horrible accident, but it was enough to do some decent damage. So I pull over, I get out, first thing he says to me, that was your fault. I was not as sanctified in that moment as I hoped. I, it, was, it, was in, it was a French-speaking country and I knew enough French to get by. I said everything I knew to him in French. And it was not good. The Lord has forgiven me. It was 20 years ago, so we're good. Time heals all wounds, right? <laughs> but even in a, in a very poor developing nation, they had the same mentality. Never accept blame. Make excuses. Your ignorance is just an excuse that God does not see as a valid excuse in our lives. And that ignorance will keep God out of the center of our life because we, if we know the word and we know his character and we know who he is, we know that he is the only God, that he is the only one to worship and that he wants first place. And we keep him there, but ignorance will keep him out. All right, third and finally is comparison. Might be the biggest bully of all. Comparison will keep God out of the center of your life so fast. I heard a pastor say it one time, and I've said it a few times too. I wonder what I would have if I didn't know what you had. Because it's really it's about comparison, you know. My 2011 Honda Odyssey is just fine and dandy until I see your 2022 Honda Odyssey. Now mine's horrible. It's all about comparison. We compare ourselves to others and what other people have, and what it does is it motivates us to keep up with the Joneses, or at least to come alongside or just be a little bit behind the Joneses, but not so far back that they look that tall, right? We have, there's expectations in our society and it all comes from comparison. You know, I was telling the first service, I was thinking through this this week and I was like, you know, it's, it's very common to hear people in, in prison to get saved, right? We hear it all the time. Uh, Bill Culver, part of our church, he's part of a prison ministry. They go in and do Bible studies in these prisons and guys are just weeping and getting saved and it's, it's beautiful. It's, it's a, almost addictive when you really get into it, because you just see these guys so open to the word of God and getting saved. And you've heard stories of hardened criminals that have given their lives to Jesus and are genuinely turned around. And, and it's just these guys that wanted nothing to do with Jesus outside of those prison walls, now they're open to it. And you know, it's easy for us to think, well, you know, I mean, that's, obviously they've probably had enough time to think now. They're like, well, I guess I do need God. And that's probably some of it. But you know what I think is a lot of it? Is there's not really a whole lot of comparison going on in prison, you know? I mean, I can't look at your orange jumpsuit and wish my orange jumpsuit was more like yours, right? It's kind of the same. The clothing is the same for everybody. The food is the same for everybody. A lot of everything is the same. So there's no comparison. So that comparison aspect is not occupying your brain and occupying any of your motivation and efforts in life. So it's actually open to actually allowing God to come in and giving him first place. I believe with all my heart that's a good bit of it because comparison is a God in our life. It's a devil in our life to want to have what other people have or be like other people or not wanting to be rejected or having this finding our identity and what people think about us. It's a challenge for all of us every day, every day. It's always gonna be a challenge. Unless you live in a cave, it's going to be a challenge. And I can tell you comparison is a bully in your life and in mine. But God wants to be in the center and he will meet us in the middle, amen? God bless you. Would you stand with me? I wanna pray for us. And I wanna invite you to the altar, church. I wanna invite you to come up here so we can pray.
if you just wanna commit to putting him first, if you wanna just reaffirm that he's first, you wanna kick out these bullies out of your life, come up front, let's pray together. Don't worry about if anybody else is looking. Don't compare yourself to others and see if anybody's coming up. We want the transforming power of God in our life. If I ask for a show of hands, every single one of you would probably raise your hand. I want the transforming power of God. I want God to do something in my life that only he can do. That comes when we come into the presence of God. He is in the center of our kingdom. He's in the center. He wants to be first. He wants to be only. He wants to be worshiped. Not only does he want it, he commands it in our life. Absolutely commands it. That we would live this life for him and for him alone. God is so, so good. This is not a burden for us, church, to have a relationship with him. Until we see it as a privilege, it will always feel like a burden. Like, oh, I gotta do this for God. Oh, I gotta make sure I'm not doing something else because I need, you know, God will be mad at me. If we don't understand that this is a privilege, that for all of, all of human life existence on this earth, up until Jesus came, no one could have a relationship, not very few people could have a relationship with God. Now we all are welcome to him. Welcome. Jesus is not a buffer for us now, he's an usher. It brings us into the presence of God. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you today. God, we thank you that you are so unbelievably amazing. Lord, that you are worthy of our lives. You are the great high priest, Jesus. We come to you today, Lord, knowing that we're not worthy. We know that we are not good enough. We know that we fail on a daily basis. But God, we know that your love is so encompassing. What you did for us, Jesus, is so amazing that you would come and die for me. That you would come and die for each and every one of us. Not only did you do it willingly, the Bible says that it was your joy to do it. Because you were not gonna go for eternity and not have people able to come into your holy of holies. You were determined to bring us into that place, God. So we come into your presence today, Lord. We want to see your transforming presence in our life. We want to experience you in a powerful way. And God, I pray for everybody at this altar today, Lord, that we would put you first, that we would keep you first, that we would push out all the other gods in our life, all those things in our life that would want our worship, Lord. We reject those things and we give it all to you. Jesus, we recommit today to giving you that place. You are the only one worthy to be in that room in our life. And so God, we're gonna meet you in the middle. We're gonna meet you in the center of our life today. And God, we want you to be glorified, but we thank you today that when we do this, that we know that we will also reap the benefits of being in that intimate relationship with you. God, we're so blessed. Lord, we pray against the bullies that would wanna come in and take place in our life, Lord. The bully of comparison. God, the bully of ignorance. Lord, we come against that bully of ignorance that would tell us that we don't have to know, that we don't have to worry about it, but we can just kind of paint with a broad brush. Lord Jesus, we come today to kick that out. Lord, we're not gonna compare ourselves to others. We're not gonna just look to other people, God, but we're going to put ourselves at your feet. Lord, help us to to push aside everything else in our life, God, that would wanna take that place in life. 
Lord Jesus, we thank you today that we can trust you. We thank you that you are worthy of our lives, that you're worthy of our trust. Lord, I pray for anyone in this house today that doesn't know you, that they would not leave this house today without giving their life to you. Lord, we thank you today that it is by faith that we are saved through grace so that no one can boast. None of us deserve salvation. We just step into it because of what you did for us. We step into the presence of God because of what you've done. We receive your forgiveness today, God. We walk in freedom, in holiness, and Lord, we ask that we would decrease and that you would increase in our lives. And it's in Jesus' precious name we pray. And everyone said, amen, amen. Can we praise God again? Thank you, Lord. We're clapping for Jesus. Thank you, God. Thank you, Lord. Hallelujah. Praise God. Well, God bless all of you.